Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Journalism, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jenna Spinelli, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Andy Tucker, the H. Gordon Garabedian Professor of Journalism and Director of the Communications PhD Program at the Columbia Journalism School, and the author of Not Exactly Lying, Fake News and Fake Journalism in American History, published in 2022 by Columbia University. Andy, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jenna. So, you know, the the term fake news, I might put into a category with some with terms like uh, critical race theory and that it tends to get thrown around a lot and, you know, manipulated in some cases intentionally so by people who are seeking to undermine democracy or the kind of anti-democratic forces in our society. So I thought it would be good to start with with a definition, given the, that fake news has been been thrown around so much. You know, what in, in your frame and your your work in this book, can you tell us what fake news is and perhaps what it isn't? Fake news has been around since, for as long as as journalism has been around in America, and it's meant many different things. It has meant. It has been used to apply to satire. It has been used to apply to hoaxes. It's been used to dismiss the accuracy of 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 information that that the that you don't agree with. It's so it's such a squishy term, especially since it has it is now so closely associated with President Donald Trump, former President Donald Trump, and his use of that term to dismiss critical information. <laughs> It almost isn't terribly useful anymore. What I find is a more useful and also a more dangerous term is is fake journalism, which is what I've taken to calling the use of the forms and conventions and appearance of credible, authenticated, verifiable, independent journalism in order to to appropriate the credibility of that kind of journalism in, and to disseminate work uh, information that's not true. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, well, I'm sure we'll we'll come back to this. There's, there's been lots of uh, discussion recently about pink slime sites and truthers and, and all of these things that, that have done just what you suggest, taken the form of journalism to, to disseminate information that is untrue and, and designed to, to manipulate. But before we, we get to that, can you just talk a little bit about your interest in this, this topic and you know, obviously, it has taken on this new life in the in the Trump era. Is that where your interest started, or does it perhaps go back farther than that? Oh, I think I've been writing this book for as long as I've been alive. I've I've always been interested in the evolution of what I call the conventions of truth telling in journalism, but also in historiography, in family narrative, in all sorts of nonfiction forms. But it's really impossible to think about conventions of truth telling without looking at the opposite and figuring out what then counts as false or fake. And what do people want and expect from the nonfiction forms that are presented to them? How do they how do they relate to them? How do they interpret them? What do they expect. And a lot of the work that I've done in the newspaper, in in newspapers up until right about the beginning of the 20th century showed me that for much of American journalism, newspapers were not expected to be particularly truthful. They, yeah, they, they did carry important news, tidings, intelligence of public affairs, but they also had hoaxes and humbugs. They had short stories. They had poetry. They had stuff they copied from other newspapers that they weren't sure whether it was true or not. A common headline was important if true, which meant if it wasn't true, then you know, don't worry about it. But the 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 whole idea of of a newspaper as devoted to purveying nothing but truth didn't even begin until the beginning of the 20th century. Right. So if, if we go back to that, you know, important if true era, how did how did readers react to seeing this this information and, and what do we know about what their expectations were of what they were reading in, in newspapers and, and other periodicals and things at, at the time? It's hard to know for sure, because very few people ever wrote down in their diary that night, I read a newspaper and it wasn't true and I was really mad. But I think that by reading a wide range of newspapers and comparing their coverage and comparing them to what other accounts of what happened, you can get a sense People wanted, in the 1830s and 40s, for instance, was the beginning of what has become the commercial press in the United States. Before that, it was very partisan. It was very connected and interwoven with the political sphere. The commercial press made its name, established itself, invited people in by saying, we're going to tell you stuff and you have every right because you are strong and smart and capable and just as, as, as able as any rich, important person to decide for yourself what's true. So here, we're going to give you stories and you figure them out. And people liked that. It was an invitation to take part in public discussion given to people who had not before that really seen newspapers important to their well-being. So I think people enjoyed the game that a newspaper set up. I'll figure out what's true. I can decide whether this is true. I can decide whether that's true. And obviously there was a range of stuff. Obviously people wanted the truth about the Civil War battle that happened yesterday. 
but there was there's also a, a real sense, I think, that a newspaper was an entertainment. Also, remember newspapers for a lot of people, they didn't see much other print in in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. A lot of people had access didn't have access to, to libraries or bookstores. So this gave them their their look at the world and and you know, why not have some stuff that was fun? Yeah. And and I think it's easy to look at that decision to bring the news to the everyday person to, to sort of paint that with this very like civic engagement or, you know, egalitarian or, or kind of noble brush. But I think there's also it was it was a, a business decision, right? They saw the opportunity to make money here. Yeah, yeah, it was it was mutually beneficial. The the the, the printers, the, the editors, the publishers. Yeah, these could sell these newspapers since they weren't dependent on political parties for support. These newspapers could sell and they would be given to boys to hawk in the streets, you know, extra, extra, get your paper here and people would run out and get it. They cost a penny in those early days and almost anybody could come up with a penny or at least have several people together who could come up with a penny. So yes, it was it was a great business decision for the editors and publishers who who had to, who could figure out how to get the biggest readership possible, which meant sometimes being sensational, sometimes being yellow, sometimes being being you know making all sorts of stuff up and it was a pleasure for the people it was designed for. Yeah. You you talk at, at some length in the book about the story of Maria Monk, who was, I believe, sort of emblematic of, of coverage in this area. Can, can you tell us about that and, and how it maybe exemplifies the approach to journalism and, and truth telling at this this time? Yeah, the Maria Monk story was really interesting. This was a young woman who came, who appeared in New York claiming that she had been captive, held captive in a, in a nunnery in Canada, where the the priests and the nuns were horrible people. They were they they fornicated, they they committed adultery, though they weren't married, they 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 when children were born of these illicit liaisons, the children were murdered. There was rape. There was it was it was a you know horrible place. And this came in an era when there was a lot of fear about Catholics and the influence of Catholics, the Catholics that the Pope was going to take over the world, that the Pope was sending emissaries, the Jesuits were going to, you know, be, take over the government. So this story fed fears that were already deep-seated in many of the readers. But it also got manipulated in all sorts of ways. Maria Monk was taken up by a group of, of Protestant clergy people who saw her as a great spokesperson f- against Catholics, but also they saw that they could they could make a profit from her. They published a book. They kept the profits from the book. The newspapers joined in quickly, and they they took different points of view. They said, here... This is a story that we've heard. We can't guarantee it's true. So again, that little that little sort of nudge. We can't guarantee it's true. You make up your own mind. You decide. But it went in great length about how about all of the terrible things that were going on in this in this convent. So it was very tempting. There was a real invitation for readers to believe it. Um, remember another the, the publisher of a of a traditional conventional old line elitist newspaper in Wall Street decided he was going to go up and check the story out for himself. And he did what was essentially investigative reporting. He went to the convent. He poked around. He looked for the the, the 
barrels in the basement where the bodies were supposed to be uh, hidden. He interviewed people. He talked to former residents. And he came back and he wrote a huge story saying this is all false. This is an errant imposture. But it sort of didn't matter because people had already made up their minds and they decided whether or not they wanted to believe it based on how they felt about the threat of Jesuits taking over American government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you know, as I, as I think about stories like this, I I wonder about the the impact of people choosing to believe one thing or not in this in in that era that you were just describing versus you know our social media era where it's, it's so easy for people to be kind of gaslit or have their their mm-hmm. lives ruined because of something that is is out there about them online whether it's it's something that that's reported that's you know picked up by the internet machine or uh, you know something that that comes from one of these these truthers or you know pink slime type type of operations uh, i guess is that it, is that fair that the, the the stakes maybe just weren't as high then because information just didn't travel as far or the the consequences of someone choosing to believe something or were not as as far reaching as they perhaps are today? I think that's yeah, I think that's a fair point. In fact, it, it's it's a sort of a, a strange situation in which part of the reason that it, it the stakes were lower in the 1830s was that it was much faster. The stories would come and go, and a newspaper was an ephemeral thing, and it came out one day, and then the next day there was another newspaper, and the next week there was another newspaper, and people, it was easier to forget what had happened before because those newspapers didn't stick around. But it also, because that the information traveled more slowly, didn't get away, it didn't get out of New York as fast. New York had moved on to something else by the time people in Cincinnati or St. Louis were reading about it. So the 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 critical mass and the speed that that some of these disinformation has now today, that just wasn't present then. It felt fast to the people at the time, but but it, it also meant that 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 stories could come and go. So when when do we start to see the shift from, you know, news outlets placing the onus on on readers to be the arbiters of of what they believed or did into saying, no, you know, we're going to be the ones that decide, you know, what's true or, you know, verify what's true and, and, and put that out to you and this this kind of inherent assumption that, you know, news coverage would be grounded in, in truth. Yeah, that began to happen the end of the 19th, early 20th centuries when journalism at that point was really terrible. It was really embarrassing. This was the era of the yellow press. This was the, the tremendous competition between the Hearst Press and the Pulitzer Press over as stories like the Spanish-American War where they just ratcheted up the, the competition to such a peak that, that, that they both were, were way out in, in, in the ad- in the atmosphere, um, there was a growing sense among reformers and progressives and some newspaper editors that newspapers were not serving the public good. And that had always been an idea. As, as crazy and as, as inaccurate as they sometimes got, there, were always, there was always an, an idea that, that newspapers did have a role in fostering democracy and informing the public. And it was very clear in the 80s and 90s, 1880s, 1890s, this just was not happening anymore. The, the press w- was embarrassing. So reform-minded activists and some journalists, notably the New York Times, which had just been bought by Adolf Oaks, who was a German immigrant, began to work to, in, in effect, to, out, to, to, to condemn fake journalism by inventing real journalism. 
the there were some journalists in the at this in this era who were saying very clearly and openly, we love to fake. Faking is fun. Readers love when we fake. Faking is a good deal for everybody. And they didn't mean, you know, making up who won an election. What they meant was just adding embellishments, adding reader-friendly details. But they used that word faking as as something that was positive. The new reformers began to 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 to, to distinguish themselves, to distance themselves from this. We don't fake, they said. You can't trust the ones that, that admit to faking, but we have standards. We have conventions. We are going to look at the news with independence, with rigor. We're going to verify it. You can trust us. We believe that what we're doing is important and that you will, you will, you will see a difference. So they invented real journalism as a, as a, as a way to push back against fake journalism. Yeah. And, and, Walter Lippmann was was a, a central figure to this, correct? Yeah, yeah. He was a, a very important journalist, had been a progressive, was horrified by the propaganda and the success of the propaganda in World War I, but very committed to the idea of important information being made available. But he believed that what he, he, he was he was one who talked about objectivity, but mm-hmm. objectivity has come to mean something different than what he had in mind. Objectivity to, to Lippmann and to others in that era did not mean the attitude of the journalist was no opinion. It, it talked about the process, not the attitude. Objectivity was a process of rigorously investigating, observing facts, testing your assumptions against the facts scientifically verifying the facts if you can, to be as rigorous and unemotionally involved as a scientist, but not but but to but to understand your own preconceptions and and work against them, test against them, so that your readers, once you've presented your findings to your readers, they would feel comfortable that they were getting the whole story, not just the story that comported with the journalist's own views. So as as I was reading this this part in the book about Lippmann, I, I couldn't help but think about his dialogues with John Dewey and sort of the role of of, of the public in, in in society and and in democratic decision making, as just as we were talking about about earlier. And so, you know, Lippmann, as I understand it, was distrustful of of the public and was sort of in favor of you know outsourcing decisions or, or taking power away from the public and putting it in the hands of of elites. For, for lack of a better term, and so mm-hmm. I just I you know found myself thinking about what what could this have looked like if things had maybe gone more Dewey's way, if there was a way to still <laughs> kind of have those standards for the press, but with that sense still of like this, there is a, a burden on us as citizens to mm-hmm. be an active player here, not just become more more of a passive news consumer, which sounds like was was part of. Lippmann's vision. Yeah, Lippmann did have, he didn't have a lot of faith in the ability of the ordinary news consumer to make, to have, to have well-formed opinions about important aspects because the world, he said, was complicated and people just don't see it. They're busy. They have other lives. It's been presented as a kind of undemocratic, dismissive viewpoint of, of, of the popular mind, maybe, but he also... To, to give him credit, he also th- this is why he believed that journalism needed to professionalize because people were not able to do that rigorous work of investigation and observation 
themselves. They didn't have the time. They didn't have the training. He believed that journalists needed to be well-educated, needed to have standards, needed to have conventions. And for that, I think that's an important step. That's an important step forward. Dewey was less dismissive of the ability of the ordinary person to take part in public life and in, had, a, had a greater faith in the idea of democracy. And, and you know, that we can say that that's lovely. We can also say that that's maybe a little rosy. And, you know, so the, 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 this, the tension between the two of them, there's all, it, it, people tend to see Dewey as the good, good guy and Lippmann as the bad guy. And there were aspects of what Lippmann was doing, I think, that, that still are important drivers of journalism today. <laughs> Yeah, and and I think that tension is still very much playing out today too, as as we continue to talk about what objectivity means or or should mean, or as we you know there are lots of of you know engagement or community centered journalism that is rethinking the 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 relationship between news gatherers and the the audiences that they serve. So yeah, I think we're still seeing that play out on 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 many levels. So as you said, it, you know, journalism becomes more professionalized and and that in some ways brings up a a, a set of of other problems when it comes to this, this idea <laughs> it of, sure of does. bakery right so there's uh i i thought a lot also when i was reading your book about the work that Kathy Roberts Ford did in, in her book Journalism and Jim Crow where you know newspapers in the south were were complicit in in you know advancing stereotypes and, and, and falsehoods about African-Americans to kind of perpetuate this Jim Crow ideology. So it's sort of just, I guess, can you, can you talk more, more about that and about sort of the, the problems that this, you know, reliance on, on interviews and, and trying to, you know, verify information in a way that had not been done before kind of opened perhaps to being manipulated or, you know, walking into some of these, these doors by people who had ulterior motives, perhaps. Yeah. Once there became, once the conventions of real journalism became clear, once people began to understand that, that real journalists were claiming a difference between themselves and the fakers, that it became that was a sort of an open invitation for people who wanted to get their untrue ideas into the mainstream to dress up like journalists, to dress up like real journalists, to take the new the new ideas about how new journalism worked, and 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 apply that that veneer to the to the to the untrue work that they were doing. And the, the white Southern press was was a really huge and disturbing example of this. The white Southern press presented itself as real, verified journalism. It was utterly dismissive of the African-American press. And particularly Ida B. Wells Barnett was a very courageous and active journalist who who ran a paper in Memphis that was burned up, that was, you know, that was shut down. She was chased out of town. She was reporting that the standard idea that was that was flourished in this in the white southern press that black men were always were committing bestial sex crimes against white women and we had to protect our white women and we had to take extra vigilant we had to take vigilante justice against these black men because you know this is the most terrible thing that could happen we need to protect our womanhood wells barnett 
by investigation, proved that most of the cases that in which black men were accused of sex crimes were not true. It were not true. And there was a lot more violence and, and unjustified prosecution of black men than, than, than anybody had acknowledged. Uh, papers like the Atlanta Constitution would then call Ida B. Wells a faker. They had a big headline once. This is talking about her fakes. They used that word, which had come to be applied to the yellow press, the, the sensational press, and they used it to apply to the accurate reporting of an African-American woman who was undermining one of the great myths of, 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 of the South. So it was a, it was a real manipulation of these, these emerging conventions of what was true and what was false. So, you know, up to this point, we've been talking about written content, but as we go on in history, you know, photographs and, and later, you know, radio and, and, and television and other forms of, of visual and, and auditory media come into play. How do these conceptions of, of being, being a faker of, you know, fake news, fake journalism start to change as the, the ways that people consume news change? Well, every new communications technology goes through a tryout for how it's going to work in journalism. And the rules are always unclear. There are no rules. Nobody knows how it's going to work. What is it going to do? How's it going to, how much will it cost? But new technologies also, I think, inevitably undergo tryouts for fake journalism. So with photography, with moving pictures, with radio, in each case, in the early years, there were episodes where um, false, false use, false information, manipulation were, were commonplace as people tried to figure out whether or not that was fair or not. In photography, Photography was seen in the beginning as an astonishing thing. It was going to re replicate the world as it is. You can see exactly what the world looks like. It's a new way of seeing. It's a new way of being there. It's absolutely authentic, much more so than any kind of painting could be. And very soon, there were people like William Mumler, who opened a photography studio where he said, I can take spirit pictures. Come on in and sit down in my chair, and, and I will take a photograph. And, and over your shoulder, you will see, you see that blurry thing? That's the ghost of grandma. And people would look at it and say, yeah, I really miss you, grandma. Because they wanted to believe that this weird, new, uncanny technology that could seem to arrest the world in its tracks could also maybe break through the veil of spirit, you know, spirit world and show you a photograph of somebody who was dead. People wanted to believe that. There was even a fraud trial in which Mumler was brought up on charges of fraud and they couldn't prove how he did it. So they let him go. But many people came to the trial to support him. They say, yes, this is, this is what we want. He, he, it, it, you know, it, it, it soothed my heart in, in the era of the, the Civil War and right afterwards, there was the many people were turning to spiritualist or, or 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 spiritual comfort. So that was an example of right away the way that the, the you know the, the the new capacities of photography were manipulated in a false way. Yeah. So then, as we continue on in our our, our trip through history, we get to what, what you mentioned at the, at the very beginning, things like the Daily Show and really you know fake news sort of morphing in into satire. You know that I think takes it. That is that is deliberately fake. And is is was is there a precedent for that in history, or the the kind of presentation of satire 
in relationship to news and the way that some of these shows have done in in recent years? That's an interesting question. There, there's always been people like Mark Twain would often publish in newspapers stuff that was satirical, although the problem was not people didn't always necessarily understand that it was satirical. He published something about a grand miscegenation ball, a ball in which the race is mixed. And in in Twain's era, that was seen as shocking and even illegal. And it was not clear that he was making that he was he was making a satirical point. So it's always been around. But for, for John Stewart, it, it kind of he he owned the term fake news for, for the 15 years of his show. And it, it became it was kind of a shock for those of us who remembered his show and understood it to mean something that was not. It was funny, but it was also it could be very edgy. It could be very challenging. It could take on journalistic stories that real journalists were not taking on and, and approach them in ways that journalists either felt their their ethics could not allow them to or didn't have the nerve to or didn't have the, the standing to. It was a whole it was its own genre. And it 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 flourished for that brief time as something that was satirical. And it has since become, nobody would now look at the term fake news and think, oh, that's something that's going to make me laugh. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash NBN50 to get 50% off. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The other thing that, that we've seen all, you know, sort of around this time that, that the Daily Show and, and the Onion and things are coming online. This is also the time of, of the Jason Blair scandal. You write about several other other examples of, you know, professional, educated, trained journalists who are kind of secretly faking, I guess, or trying to, you know, and going out and, and, and pretending that they've done real reporting. So, so talk about that, how, where that impulse comes from and, and how it, it perhaps undermines credibility or, or, or trust and then the ways that that might impact, you know, people's 
news consumers' uh, tendency to believe the news that they're consuming or, or, or know or, or trust that it's truthful and, and accurate. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's, I think there are two different strands to that question. One strand is the Jason Blair strand. The There was a, an epidemic in the early 2000s of Jason Blair, Stephen Glass of, of the New Republic. There, there, were, there were a number of, of these episodes Janet Cook for the Washington Post, who made up a, a young boy who she said was an, an, a, a dope addict and was selling. And it turned out she got a Pulitzer Prize for it that she had to give back because she had made it up completely. So on the one hand, those were deceptive. Those were purposeful deceptions by often young reporters who were trying to make their way in a competitive news business. And it can be really hard to go out and knock on the on the next door and to get the next inf- interview and to and to do it all really fast. And there's enormous pressure on a lot of these these young people, but it ended up damaging severely, terribly damaging, undermining the the newspapers they worked for because readers had the logical question: How did the editors not know? How did they get away with this? So that was fake news on a level. The 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 the, the consequences played out at a higher level than 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 the the news itself had been had been created. It was it was young people who did it, and it was it was journalism that took the hit. But there's another kind of of what I what I call fake journalism, although it's a little bit edgier. Unintentional mistakes are not fake journalism, but what I call willfully blinkered reporting, I think, is fake journalism. And for examples of that, you can look at, for instance, the New York Times reporting on the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Well, many, many newspapers reporting on that, where there was a real pressure for the, the, the WMB to be found in order to justify the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And it was pretty clear that in, in retrospect, a number of news organizations apologized. They said, we didn't do our due diligence. We didn't look at it carefully enough. We should have been more credul- more, more. We should have looked more, more closely. We should have been more skeptical. But I think that they were primed not to want to be more skeptical because there was pressure from the White House in Washington, but also pressure from inside the newsrooms to, to uphold the war effort. It's really hard sometimes to look like you're not supporting the troops. And those in the af- aftermath of those, that was another way of undermining people's faith. Right. Do you think that the journalism as a practice lost some skepticism or what, what if anything, do you see that was was lost as a result of the kind of professionalization and the adoption of a, a more objective style of, of mm. news gathering? That's an important question. I think, I think the idea of journalists as some kind of experts, even if they do it fast, even if they parachute in and do a lot of interviews fast or do a lot of background reading or look in the morgue for the clips or look on the internet, you know, the idea that journalists have a special access to certain kinds of investigative techniques that other people might not, that they know how to approach a story, they know the right questions to ask, they know how to be skeptical and investigate the possible answers and, 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 and choose the ones that are the most accurate. That whole idea, that really suffered a lot in the aftermath of both kinds of, of fake journalism, the, the, the mistakes, the, the deceptions of the Jason Blairs and the... the 
the willful delusions of the WMD. The idea that a journalist was somehow more able to understand and describe the world took a real hit. Mm-hmm. And, and so from that, I wonder if, if it follows the kind of citizen journalists that we see online today, the, 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 the truthers, the people who, you know, start blogs and all of these things where they claim to tell the real story or the one that, you know, the, the mass media isn't telling you, you might, you might, I think you might characterize some of this as, as, as fake journalism, but do you see a, a through line there from some of those missteps or, or what are, are in hindsight missteps of mainstream news outlets and this sort of place that we are today about people saying, well, I don't know what to believe, so I'm going to have to do this myself or I'm going to sort of you know, draw my own conclusions regardless of whatever the facts might be. Yeah, I think there is a, there's a very strong through line. The idea that that the citizen, that the ordinary person can do, can can investigate on his or her own, can come to their own conclusions, can do your own research is something you see a lot. I've done my own research into vaccines. I've done my own research into the election fraud, and I've come to my conclusions. That's a really powerful feeling for a lot of people. There, There is a strong anti-elitist trend in American society now. Understandably, many elites have really screwed up royally and visibly in lots of ways. Elites can can make ordinary people feel excluded, feel dismissed, feel unvalued. There is there's an un, it, it's really understandable that there is turning against elites in in current and the 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 populist trend in in politics that has been you know under the, the strengthened under Donald Trump is another another aspect of that so yeah there is a there's a really strong sense among what you want to call ordinary people you know the 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 average voter that i can figure it out myself i don't trust what the elites are going to tell me they've lied to me before they've messed up before i can do it myself <sighs> That's really seductive, but it's also, as we've seen so often, it can be really, really dangerous in in approaching vaccination, for instance. We've seen now that that there is an enormous scientific evidence proving the worth of vaccines, that there are certainly concerns, there are certainly reservations, but in general, vaccination is you know, there is medical evidence to prove that vaccination works very well in many cases. And for people to dismiss the scientific evidence because I've done my own research, when their own research can can often be people, citizens who pull stuff out of the air or who read something somewhere once or who have, have don't, don't, aren't, aren't, aren't um, cognizant enough of the way science works. It's, it's, it's really, it can, it can be very troubling. And, and also troubling on the, the news consumption side. I think that the, the way that our, our media works these days, per, perhaps unlike in, in previous eras now, you know, you could live your whole life and not interact with a, a mainstream 
news outlet if you wanted to and just go deeper and deeper and deeper. And I think we've, we've seen accounts of you know people who've gone down these rabbit holes on YouTube and on other types of, of social media. And yeah, you could just sort of build your own walled garden in some ways. And so that that's, that strikes me as something new about this this current moment, right, that, that was not necessarily there earlier in, in the history of media. Yeah, there. it is very easy for people to be completely splintered. There are just so many different sources they can go to, so many different places they can, they can park themselves. You could certainly fringe ideas. The fringe ideas have always been around. They all, they, there are often ways to disseminate them. There are, in, in, in the 1830s and 40s, there were a number, enormous number of newspapers devoted to various causes. Some of them like abolition and feminism, and some of them like, uh, there was a, a, a commune sort of up in upstate New York that, that advocated for free sex and and you know so there were there were all sorts of different uh kinds of of newspapers devoted to different causes but they didn't circulate in anything like the numbers they didn't have the same kind of reach and it was a lot harder to focus only on those on those particular newspapers it's a lot easier to be sitting at your own desk with your own computer or your own phone to 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 go down the rabbit holes of, of, of certain kinds of, of social media and, and never see anything else. And there's, there's, it's hard to, to, to feel that, that it, it's very easy to avoid anything that challenges the way you, you choose to believe in the beginning. Right. So you, you say in, in the book that there are no easy answers mm. to, to the, these predicaments that we find ourselves in. And, and, and I appreciate that. I think that there's often, often a tendency, I don't know if this is, this is book editors or just people's desire to look on the bright side of things to sort of point to, well, maybe if we just had more media literacy, or maybe if we just had more fact checking, or maybe if we just did this, or it's, you know, we, we can find our way out of this and, and, and get rid of, or, you know, reduce the impact of some of these more nefarious elements we've been talking about. But uh, I think you, if I'm interpreting correctly, you sort of as a, as a path forward, you, you talk about fake journalism can't define what real journalism is. So I wonder if you could say more um, about that and, and how it relates to how some of this might start to, to move forward. Yeah, this is a tentative conclusion. And I'm, it, there's still a lot of, of challenges as I think it through, but it Objectivity is under enormous pressure now. Objectivity is under enormous stress. Many people believe, well, there's no such thing as objectivity. We should just give up the pretense. We should not even pretend that, we're, that we, we have no opinions. Everybody has opinions and we should be open about them. We should be transparent about how we feel. There's a lot of, of, of seduction in that argument. It also, there's, a, there's also the argument that objectivity tends to valorize and validate default white male attitudes as being neutrality. And that's that's certainly a valid and, and important concern. But I'm a little worried about what would happen if I what I can see is is the media landscape dividing into two parts. On the one side, you get the fake journalists who use the the guise of journalism to present all sorts of, of untrue information. And 
Many of that, much of that comes from the right. Not all of that comes from the right. But if you look at things like Fox News and Breitbart and Sinclair Broadcasting and the Pink Slime local newspapers, they all say we are objective. We are we correct our mistakes. We are truthful. We are independent. It's the other guys who are not. They're just giving you their opinion. On the other side, you have mainstream media who are saying, we should recognize and understand and accept that objectivity is not possible. We should be transparent. We should be open about our subjectivity. So they are the ones who are doing the the hard, rigorous work of journalism are also the ones who are saying, we can't really necessarily say this is the truth. And you've got the fake journalists saying, we got the truth. We got the truth. We know. And the others are just giving us their opinion. That's a really bad place to be. And it, 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 there are challenges on both sides of that. But I'm really concerned if we give up on the idea of objectivity entirely, the, the, the original idea of objectivity as rigorous and, and a rigorous approach that can just can 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 verify and investigate facts. If we give up on that idea and say it's impossible in the mainstream, we're leaving the fake journalists to define what journalism is. And, and, and so another mm-hmm. kind of conversation related to this is how much of the onus to, to do what you just described about you know figuring out objectivity and, and, and defining real journalism mm-hmm. in this era, how much of the onus on that is on journalists and news organizations themselves? And and how much do they have the capacity to even do that? That's a hard question. That's a really hard question. They they clearly need to do a better job of explaining what objectivity originally meant and living up to that ideal. It's very hard in the place we are now. It's really hard to find the the, the ledge where you can to, to, to find a way to step back and and rethink and recalibrate and say look this you got to understand this is how we're doing it and i don't really have any suggestions for how to do that other than to try really really hard <laughs> well let me bring this to something that that's perhaps a little bit more familiar what about how how should journalism educators be thinking about about this this dichotomy between fake journalism and and real journalism and and, and preparing students to exist in this world, you know, you are at one of, if not the preeminent journalism <laughs> education organization in the country. How are you and your your colleagues thinking about this as you are edu- educating the next generation of journalists? We talk about that a lot. It's really hard. And I've been there now about 20 years and the and education has changed so radically since I began. When I started there in, in 1998, most of the students there would go on and graduate and get, you know, an internship in a smaller paper and, 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 and decide and, and move on and then eventually end up at the New York Times or the New Yorker or CBS News. And there was, that, was, that was a career path that, that seemed plausible for a lot of people. It's, it's really not. What many of them do now, they do, they'll get into social media or they will do internships. They'll, they'll work, some of them work for nonprofits that do journalistic-like work. It's, it, the, the entire uh, profession has 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 radically shifted in in has, has changed one thing i'm going to say and it sounds self-serving though is that it's young people always want to tear down the world and build it up again and that's great and that's how we make progress but there are some things that should be torn down 
very slowly and carefully. And I don't think this is the right time to completely tear down the traditional idea of objective independent journalism. I think we lose a lot if we do that. And the students, many of them are really impatient. They see it's not working to, in ways that feel right. And they want to just, they want to go out and, and, and burn it all down and, and, and make, and, and have journalism to be completely about here's 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 my opinion here's why i think it it, it works this way i i don't think that's going to get us where we need to be hmm. are are you successful in in making that argument <laughs> i try i try it's hard to know it's hard to know and and the students are going to go out and they're they're out in the world now and the world is different than journalism school and some of them will will come to different conclusions out there in the world. And maybe they will stop and remember that there was, you know, this, this might've been suggested. And some of them will, will, will invent new things and will go in new places and good for them. That's great too, but don't, don't completely lose track of where they've been. What are you working on now or, or next? Do you plan to continue uh, watching this, the, the, fake journalism, real journalism dichotomy play out, or are you perhaps shifting to, to, to other focus areas? This is something I'm going to keep an eye on. It was really hard to know when to stop the book because I turned in the manuscript, I guess, last year. It was after, it was right about after January 6th that I, that I was finishing it up. And what could I say about January 6th when I had three days to till my deadline? the the way that 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 has been covered since has been enormously interesting it's been it's been a little disturbing in in many ways but it's been very interesting so yeah there's there's a lot to keep looking at but i'm also interested in in looking in i'm i'm thinking in terms of maybe a course on the global idea of truth in public life that would look at not just journalism not just history but art, you know, for art forgery, scientific debates, the, the impostures and, and, and uh, I, I made a list of it once and I'm, I'm sort of blanking on some of it, but, but there, you know, the idea that, that deception for sometimes positive purposes and almost for and often for negative purposes has been very much a part of public life from the beginning in many, many, many different areas. To, to look in a broader sense, I have, it's all very vague and I don't know where I'd go with that, but that's, that's an idea I've had in the back of my head. That This has been a, a wonderful conversation. The book, uh, once again, is not exactly lying fake news and fake journalism in American history out now from Columbia University Press. And Andy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jenna. It was a great conversation. I enjoyed it.